The Whisperer in Darkness, Part 2. Six. On Wednesday, I started, as agreed, taking with me a valis full of simple necessities and scientific data, including the hideous phonograph record, the Kodak prints, and the entire file of Akeley's correspondence. As requested, I had told no one where I was going, for I could see that the matter demanded utmost privacy, even allowing for its most favorable turns. The thought of actual mental contact with alien, outside entities was stupefying enough to my trained and somewhat prepared mind, and this being so, what might one think of its effect on the vast masses of uninformed laymen? I do not know whether dread or adventurous expectancy was uppermost in me as I changed trains at Boston and began the long westward run out of familiar regions into those I knew less thoroughly. Waltham, Concord, Eyer, Fitchburg, Athol. My train reached Greenfield seven minutes late, but the northbound connecting express had been held. Transferring in haste, I felt a curious breathlessness as the cars rumbled on through the early afternoon sunlight into territories I'd always read of but had never before visited. I knew I was entering an altogether older-fashioned and more primitive New England than the mechanized, urbanized coastal and southern areas where all my life had been spent, an unspoiled ancestral New England without the foreigners and factory smoke, billboards and concrete roads. There would be odd survivals of that continuous native life, whose deep roots make it one authentic growth out of the landscape, the continuous native life which keeps alive strange ancient memories and fertilizes the soil for shadowy, marvelous, and seldom-mentioned beliefs. Now and then I saw the blue Connecticut River gleaming in the sun, and after leaving Northfield we crossed it. Ahead loomed green and cryptical hills, and when the conductor came around I learned that I was at last in Vermont. He told me to set my watch back an hour, since the northern hill country will have no dealings with newfangled daylight time schemes. As I did so, it seemed to me that I was likewise turning the calendar back a century. The train kept close to the river, and across in New Hampshire I could see the approaching slope of steep Watonsequet, about which singular old legends cluster. Then streets appeared on my left, and a green island showed in the stream on my right. People rose and filed to the door, and I followed them. The car stopped, and I alighted beneath the long train shed of the Battleboro station. Looking over the line of waiting motors, I hesitated a moment to see which one might turn out to be the Akeley Ford, but my identity was divined before I could take the initiative. And yet, it was clearly not Akeley himself who advanced to meet me with an outstretched hand and a mellowly phrased query as to whether I was indeed Mr. Albert N. Woolmerth of Arkham. This man bore no resemblance to the bearded, grizzled Akeley of the snapshot, but was a younger and more urbane person, fashionably dressed and wearing only a small, dark mustache. His cultivated voice held an odd and almost disturbing hint of vague familiarity, though I could not definitively place it in my memory. As I surveyed him, I heard him explaining that he was a friend of my prospective hosts who had come down from Towson in his stead. Akeley, he declared, had suffered a sudden attack of some asthmatic trouble and did not feel equal to making a trip in the outdoor air. It was not serious, however, and there was to be no change in plans regarding my visit. 
I could not make out just how much this Mr. Noyes, as he announced himself, knew of Akeley's research and discoveries, though it seemed to me that his casual manner stamped him as a comparative outsider. Remembering what a hermit Akeley had been, I was a trifle surprised at the ready availability of such a friend, but did not let my puzzlement deter me from entering the motor to which he gestured me. It was not the small, ancient car I'd expected from Akeley's descriptions, but a large and immaculate specimen of recent pattern, apparently Noyes's own, and bearing Massachusetts license plates with the amusing sacred codfish device of that last year. Noyes climbed into the car beside me and started it at once. I was glad that he did not overflow with conversation, for some peculiar atmospheric tensity made me feel disinclined to talk. The town seemed very attractive in the afternoon sunlight as we swept up an incline and turned to the right into the main street. It drowsed like the older New England cities which one remembers from boyhood, and something in the collocation of roofs and steeples and chimneys and brick walls formed contours touching deep, vile strings of ancestral emotion. I could tell that I was at the gateway of a region half-bewitched through the piling up of unbroken time accumulations, a region where old, strange things have had a chance to grow and linger because they have not been stirred up. As we passed out of Battleboro, my sense of constraint and foreboding increased, for a vague quality in the hill-crowded countryside, with its towering, threatening, close-pressed green and granite slopes, hinted at obscure secrets and immemorial survivals, which might or might not be hostile to mankind. For a time, our course followed a broad, shallow river which flowed down from unknown hills in the north, and I shivered when my companion told me it was the West River. It was in this stream, I recalled from newspaper items, that one of the morbid, crab-like beings had been seen floating after the floods. Gradually, the country around us grew wilder and more deserted. Archaic covered bridges lingered fearsomely out of the past in pockets of the hills, and the half-abandoned railway track paralleling the river seemed to exhale a nebulously visible air of desolation. There were awesome sweeps of vivid valley where great cliffs rose, New England's virgin granite showing gray and austere through the verdure that scaled the crests. There were gorges where untamed streams leapt, bearing down towards the river with unmingled secrets of a thousand pathless peaks. Branching away now and then were narrow, half-concealed roads that bored their way through solid, luxuriant masses of forest, among whose primal trees whole armies of elemental spirits might well lurk. As I saw these, I thought of how Akeley had been molested by unseen agencies on his drives along this very route, and did not wonder that such things could be. The quaint, sightly village of Newfane, reached in less than an hour, was our last link with that world which man can definitively call his own by virtue of conquest and complete occupancy. After that, we cast off all allegiance to immediate, tangible, and time-touched things, and entered a fantastic world of hushed unreality, in which the narrow, ribbon-like road rose and fell and curved with an almost sentient, purposeful caprice amongst the tenantless green peaks and half-deserted valleys. 
except for the sound of the motor and the faint stir of the few lonely farms we passed at infrequent intervals, the only thing that reached my ears was the gurgling, insidious trickle of strange waters from numberless hidden fountains and the shadowless woods. The nearness and intimacy of the dwarfed, domed hills now became veritably breathtaking. Their steepness and abruptness were even greater than I'd imagined from hearsay, and suggested nothing in common with the prosaic, objective world we know. The dense, unvisited woods on those inaccessible slopes seemed to harbor alien and incredible things, and I felt that the very outline of the hills themselves held some strange and eon-forgotten meaning, as if they were vast hieroglyphs left by a rumored titan race whose glories live only in rare, deep dreams. All the legends of the past, and all the stupefying imputations of Henry Akeley's letters and exhibits welled up in my memory to heighten the atmosphere of tension and growing menace. The purpose of my visit and the frightful abnormalities it postulated struck at me all at once with a chill sensation that nearly overbalanced my ardor for strange delvings. My guide must have noticed my disturbed attitude, for as the road grew wilder and more irregular, and our motions slower and more jolting, his occasional pleasant comments expanded into a steadier flow of discourse. He spoke of the beauty and weirdness of the country, and revealed some acquaintance with the folklore studies of my prospective host. From his polite questions, it was obvious that he knew I had come for some scientific purpose, and that I was bringing data of some importance, but he gave no sign of appreciating the depth and awfulness of the knowledge which Akeley had finally reached. His manner was so cheerful, normal, and urbane that his remarks ought to have calmed and reassured me, but oddly enough, I felt only the more disturbed as we bumped and veered onward into the unknown wilderness of hills and wood. At times it seemed as if he were pumping me to see what I knew of the monstrous secrets of the place, and with every fresh utterance that vague, teasing, baffling familiarity in his voice increased. It was not an ordinary or healthy familiarity, despite the thoroughly wholesome, cultivated nature of the voice. I somehow linked it with forgotten nightmares, and felt that I might go mad if I recognized it. If any good excuse had existed, I think I would have turned back from my visit. As it was, I could not well do so, and it occurred to me that a cool, scientific conversation with Akeley himself after my arrival would help greatly to pull me together. Besides, there was a strangely calming element of cosmic beauty in the hypnotic landscape through which we climbed and plunged fantastically. Time had lost itself in the labyrinths. Behind and around us stretched only the flowering waves of fairy, the recaptured loveliness of vanished centuries, the hoary groves, the untainted pastures edged with gay autumnal blossoms, and at vast intervals the small brown farmsteads nestling amidst huge trees beneath vertical precipices of vagrant briar and meadow grass. Even the sunlight assumed a supernal glamour, as if some special atmosphere or exhalation mantled the whole region. I had seen nothing like it before, save in the magic vistas that sometimes form the backgrounds of Italian primitives. Sodoma and Leonardo conceived such expanses, but only in the distance and through the vaultings of Renaissance arcades. 
We were now burrowing bodily through the midst of the picture, and I seemed to find in its necromancy a thing I'd innately known or inherited, and for which I'd always been vainly searching. Suddenly, after rounding an obtuse angle at the top of a sharp ascent, the car came to a standstill. On my left, across a well-kept lawn which stretched to the road and flaunted a border of whitewashed stones, rose a white, two-and-a-half-story house of unusual size and elegance for the region, with congenes and continuous arcane-linked barns, sheds, windmills behind and to the right. I recognized it at once from the snapshot I'd received, and was not surprised to see the name of Henry Akeley on the galvanized iron mailbox near the road. For some distance back of the house, a level stretch of marshy, sparsely wooded land extended, beyond which a steep, thickly forested hillside ended in a jagged, leafy crest. This latter, I knew, was the summit of Dark Mountain, halfway up which he must have climbed already. Alighting from the car and taking my valise, Noyez asked me to wait while he went in and notified Akeley of my advent. He himself, he added, had import business elsewhere and could not stop for more than a moment. As he briskly walked up the path to the house, I climbed out of the car myself, wishing to stretch my legs a little before settling down to a sedentary conversation. Close contact with the utterly bizarre is often more terrifying than inspiring, and it did not cheer me to think that this very bit of dusty road was the place where those monstrous tracks that had the fetid green ichor had been found after moonless nights of fear and death. Idly, I noticed that none of Akeley's dogs seemed to be about. Had he sold them all as soon as the outer ones had made peace with him? Try as I might, I could not have the same confidence in the depth and sincerity of that peace which appeared in Akeley's final, queerly different letter. Led by my thoughts, my eyes turned downward to the powdery road surface which had held such hideous testimonies. The last few days had been dry, and tracks of all sorts cluttered the rutted, irregular highway despite the unfrequented nature of the district. With a vague curiosity, I began to trace the outlines of some of the heterogeneous impressions, trying, meanwhile, to curb the flights of macabre fancy which the place and its memories suggested. There was something menacing and uncomfortable in the funereal stillness, in the muffled, subtle trickle of distant brooks, and in the crowded green peaks of the black-wooded precipices that choked the narrow horizon. And then, an image shot into my consciousness, which made those vague menaces and flights of fancy seem mild and insignificant indeed. I have said that I was scanning the miscellaneous prints in the road with a kind of idle curiosity, but all at once that curiosity was shockingly snuffled out by a sudden and paralyzing gust of active terror. For though the dust tracts were in general confused and overlapping, and unlikely to arrest any casual gaze, my restless vision had caught certain details near the spot where the path to the house joined the highway, and had recognized beyond doubt or hope the frightful significance of those details. It was not for nothing, alas, that I had pored for hours over the Kodak views of the Outer One's claw prints that Akeley'd sent me. Too well did I know the marks of those loathsome nippers, and that hint of ambiguous direction which stamped the horrors as no creature of this planet. No chance had been left me for merciful mistake. 
Here indeed, in objective form before my own eyes, and surely made not many hours ago, were at least three marks which stood out blasphemously among the surprising plethora of blurred footprints leading to and from the Akeley farmhouse. They were the hellish tracks of the living fungi from Yugoth. I pulled myself together in time to stifle a scream. After all, what more was there than I might have expected, assuming that I had really believed in Akeley's letters? He had spoken of making peace with the things. Why then was it strange that some of them had visited his house? But the terror was stronger than the reassurance. Could any man be expected to look unmoved for the first time upon the claw marks of animate beings from outer depths of space? Just then I saw Noyes emerge from the door, approach with a brisk step. I must, I reflected, keep command of myself, for chances were that the genial friend knew nothing of Akeley's profoundest, most stupendous probings into the forbidden. Akeley, Noyes hastened to inform me, was glad and ready to see me, although his sudden attack of asthma would prevent him from being a very competent host for a day or two. These spells hit him hard when they came, and were always accompanied by a debilitating fever and general weakness. He never was good for much while they lasted, had to talk in a whisper, and was very clumsy and feeble in getting about. His feet and ankles swelled too, so that he had to bandage them like a gouty old beef-eater. Today he was in rather bad shape, so that I would have to attend very largely to my own needs, but he was none the less eager for conversation. I would find him in the study at the left of the front hall, the room where the blinds were shut. He had to keep the sunlight out when he was ill, for his eyes were very sensitive. As Noyes bade me adieu and rode off northward in his car, I began to walk slowly toward the house. The door had been left ajar for me, but before approaching and entering, I cast a searching glance around the whole place, trying to decide what had struck me as so intangibly queer about it. The barns and sheds looked trimly prosaic enough, and I noticed Akeley's battered ford in its capacious, unguarded shelter. Then the secret of the queerness reached me. It was the total silence. Ordinarily a farm is at least moderately murmurous from its various kinds of livestock, but here all signs of life were missing. What of the hens and the dogs, the cows of which Akeley had said he possessed several, might conceivably be out to pasture, and the dogs might possibly have been sold, but the absence of any trace of cackling and grunting was truly singular. I did not pause long on the path, but resolutely entered the open house door and closed it behind me. It had cost me a distinct psychological effort to do so, and now that I was shut inside, I had a momentary longing for precipitate retreat. Not that the place was in the least sinister in visual suggestion. On the contrary, I thought the graceful late colonial hallway very tasteful and wholesome, and admired the evident breeding of the man who had furnished it. What made me wish to flee was something very attenuated and indefinable. Perhaps it was a certain odd odor which I thought I noticed, though I well knew how common musty odors are in even the best of ancient farmhouses. 7. Refusing to let these cloudy qualms overmaster me, I recalled Noyes's instructions and pushed open the six-paneled, brass-latched white door on my left. 
The room beyond was darkened as I'd known before, and as I entered I noticed that the queer odor was stronger here. There likewise appeared to be some faint, half-imaginary rhythm or vibration in the air. For a moment the closed blinds allowed me to see very little, but then a kind of apologetic hacking or whispering sound drew my attention to a great easy chair in the farther, darker corner of the room. Within its shadowy depths I saw the white blur of a man's face and hands, and in a moment I'd crossed to greet the figure who had tried to speak. Dim though the light was, I perceived that this was indeed my host. I'd studied the Kodak picture repeatedly, and there could be no mistake about the firm, weather-beaten face, the cropped, grizzled beard. But as I looked again, my recognition was mixed with sadness and anxiety, for certainly his face was that of a very sick man. I felt that there must be something more than asthma behind the strained, rigid, immobile expression and unwinking glassy stare, and realized how terribly the strain of his frightful experiences must have told on him. Was it not enough to break any human being, even a younger man than this intrepid delver into the forbidden? There was a touch of the pitiful and the limp, lifeless way his lean hands rested in his lap. He had on a loose dressing gown, and was swathed around the head and high around the neck with a vivid yellow scarf or hood. And then I saw that he was trying to talk in the same hacking whisper with which he'd greeted me. It was a hard whisper to catch at first, since the gray mustache concealed all movement of the lips, and something in its timbre disturbed me greatly, but by concentrating my attention I could soon make out its purport surprisingly well. The accent was by no means a rustic one, and the language was even more polished than correspondence had led me to expect. Mr. Wilmoth, I presume. You must pardon my not rising. I am... Quite ill, as Mr. Noyes must have told you, but I could not resist having you come just the same. You know what I wrote in my last letter. There is so much to tell you tomorrow, when I feel better. I can't say how glad I am to see you finally in person. After all our many letters, you have the file on you, of course. And the Kodak prints and records? For tonight, I fear you'll have to wait on yourself to a great extent. Your room is upstairs, the one above this, and you'll see the bathroom door open at the head of the staircase. There's a meal spread for you in the dining room, right through this door at your right, which you can take whenever you feel like it. I'll be a better host tomorrow, but for now, weakness leaves me helpless. Make yourself at home. You might take out the letters and pictures and records and put them on the table here before you go upstairs with your bag. It is here that we shall discuss them. You can see my phonograph on that corner stand. No, there's, there's nothing you can do for me. I, I know these spells of old. Just come back for a little quiet visiting before night and then go to bed whenever you please. I'll rest here. I'll perhaps sleep here all night, as I often do. In the morning, I'll be far better able to go into the things that we must go into. You realize, of course, the utterly stupendous nature of the matter before us. To us, as to only a few men on the earth, there will be opened up gulfs of time and space, of knowledge beyond anything within the conception of human science. 
Do you know that Einstein is wrong? That certain objects and forces can move with a velocity greater than that of light? With proper aid, I expect to go backward and forwards in time, and actually see and feel the earth of remote past and future epochs. You can't imagine the degree to which those beings have carried science. There's nothing they can't do with the mind and body of living organisms. I expect to visit other planets and other stars and galaxies. The first trip will be to Yagath, the nearest world fully peopled by the beings. It is a strange, dark orb at the very rim of our solar system, unknown to earthly astronomers as of yet. But I must have written you all about this already. At the proper time, the beings there will direct thought currents towards us and cause it to be discovered. Or perhaps let one of their human allies give the scientists a hint. Oh, Wilmarth, there are mighty cities on Yagoth, great tiers of terraced towers built of black stone, like the specimen I tried to send you. That came from Yagoth. The sun shines there no brighter than a distant star, but the beings have no need for light. They have other, subtler senses, and put no windows in their great houses and temples. Light even hurts and hampers, confuses them, for it does not exist at all in the black cosmos outside time and space, where they came from originally. To visit Yagoth would drive any weak man mad. Yet I am going there. The black rivers of pitch that flow under those mysterious cyclopean bridges, those built by some elder race extinct and forgotten before beings came to Yagoth from the ultimate voids, ought to be enough to make any man a Dante or a Poe, if he can keep sane long enough to tell what he has seen. But remember... The dark world of fungoid gardens and windowless cities isn't really terrible. It is only to us that it would seem so. Probably this world seemed just as terrible to them when they first explored it in the primal age. You know they were here long before the fabulous epoch of Cthulhu was over, and remember of sunken Relier when it was above the waters. They've been inside the earth, too. Oh, yes, there are openings which human beings know nothing of, some of them in these very Vermont hills, and there are great worlds of unknown life down there. Blue-litten Knyanyan, red-litten Yoth, and black, lightless Nikyai. It's from Nikyai that frightful Tsithagua came, you know, the amorphous, toad-like god-creature mentioned in the Nicotic Manuscripts and the Necronomicon and the Camorium myth-cycle preserved by the Atlantean high priest Kalashton. But we will talk of all this later. It must be four or five o'clock by this time. Better bring the stuff from your bag, take a bite, and then come back for a comfortable chat. Very slowly, I turned and began to obey my host, fetching my valise, extracting and depositing the desired articles, and finally ascending to the room designated as mine.
With the memory of that roadside claw print fresh in my mind, Akeley's whispered paragraphs had affected me queerly, and the hints of familiarity with his unknown world of fungus life, forbidden Yugoth, made my flesh creep more than I cared to own. I was tremendously sorry about Akeley's illness, but had to confess that his hoarse whisper had a hateful as well as pitiful quality. If only he wouldn't so gloat about Yugoth and its black secrets. My room proved a very pleasant, well-furnished one, devoid alike of the musty odor and disturbing sense of vibration, and after leaving my valise there, I descended again to greet Akeley and to take the lunch she had set out for me. The dining room was just beyond the study, and I saw that a kitchen L extended still farther in the same direction. On the dining table, an ample array of sandwiches, cake, and cheese awaited me, and a thermos bottle beside a cup and saucer testified that hot coffee had not been forgotten. After a well-relished meal, I poured myself a liberal cup of coffee, but found that the culinary standard had suffered a lapse in this one detail. My first spoonful revealed a faintly unpleasant acrid taste, so that I did not take more. Throughout the lunch, I thought of Akeley sitting silently in the great chair in the darkened room. Once I went in to beg him to share the repast, but he whispered that he could eat nothing as yet. Later on, just before he slept, he would take some malted milk, all he thought to have that day. After lunch, I insisted on clearing the dishes away and washing them in the kitchen sink, incidentally emptying the coffee which I had not been able to appreciate. Then, returning to the darkened study, I drew up a chair near my host's corner and prepared for such conversation as he might feel inclined to conduct. The letters, pictures, and recording were still on the large center table, but for the nonce we did not have to draw upon them. Before long, I forgot even the bizarre odor and curious suggestions of vibration. I have said that there were things in some of Akeley's letters, especially the second and most voluminous one, which I would not dare to quote or even form into words on paper. This hesitancy applies with still greater force to the things I heard whispered that evening in the darkened room among the lonely hills. Of the extent of the cosmic horrors unfolded by that raucous voice, I cannot even hint. He had known hideous things before, but what he'd learned since making the pact with the outside things was almost too much for sanity to bear. Even now, I absolutely refuse to believe what he implied about the constitution of ultimate infinity, the juxtaposition of dimensions, the frightful position of our known cosmos of space and time and the unending chain of linked cosmos atoms, which makes up the immediate supercosmos of curves, angles, material and semi-material electronic organization. Never was a sane man more dangerously close to the arcana of basic entity. Never was an organic brain nearer to utter annihilation in the chaos that transcends form, force, and symmetry. I learned whence Cthulhu first came, and why half the great temporary stars of history had flared forth. I guessed from hints which made even my informant pause timidly the secret behind the Magellanic clouds and the globular nebula and the black truth veiled by the immemorial allegory of Tau. 
The nature of the dwells was plainly revealed, and I was told the essence, though not the source, of the hounds of Tindalos. The legend of Yig, father of serpents, remained figurative no longer, and I stared with loathing when told of the monstrous nuclear chaos beyond angled space, which the Necronomicon had mercifully cloaked under the name of Azathoth. It was shocking to have the foulest nightmares of secret myth cleared up in concrete terms, whose stark, morbid hatefulness exceeded the boldest hints of ancient and medieval mystics. Ineluctably, I was led to believe that the first whisperers of these accursed tales must have had discourse with Akeley's outer ones, and perhaps even visited outer cosmic realms as Akeley had proposed visiting them himself. I was told of the black stone and what it implied, and was glad it had not reached me in the first. My guesses about those hieroglyphs had been all too correct. And yet Akeley now seemed reconciled to the whole fiendish system he'd stumbled upon, reconciled and eager to probe farther into the monstrous abyss. I wondered what beings he'd talked with since his last letter to me, and whether many of them had been as human as that first emissary he'd mentioned. The tension in my head grew insufferable, and I built up all sorts of wild theories about that queer, persistent odor, those insidious hints of vibration in the darkened room. Night was falling now, and as I recalled what Akeley had written me about those earlier nights, I shuddered to think there would be no moon. Nor did I like the way the farmhouse nestled in the lee of that colossal forested slope leading up to Dark Mountain's unvisited crest. With Akeley's permission, I lighted a small oil lamp, turned it low, and set it on a distant bookcase beside the ghostly bust of Milton. But afterward, I was sorry I had done so, for it made my host's strained, immobile face and listless hands look damnably abhorrent and corpse-like. He seemed half incapable of motion, though I saw him nod stiffly once in a while. After what he'd told, I could scarcely imagine what profounder secrets he was saving for the morrow, but at last it developed that his trip to Yugov and beyond, and my own possible participation in it, was to be the next day's topic. He might have been amused by the start of horror I gave at hearing a cosmic voyage on my part proposed, for his head wabbled violently when I showed my fear. Subsequently, he spoke very gently of how human beings might accomplish, and several times had accomplished, the seemingly impossible flight across the interstellar void. It seemed that complete human bodies did not indeed make the trip, but that the prodigious surgical, biological, chemical, and mechanical skill of the Outer Ones had found a way to convey human brains without their concomitant physical structure. There was a harmless way to extract a brain, and a way to keep the organic residue alive during its absence. The bare, compact, cerebral matter was then immersed in an occasionally replenished fluid within an ether-tight cylinder of a metal mined in Yugoth, certain electrodes reaching through and connecting at will with elaborate instruments capable of duplicating the three vital faculties of sight, hearing, and speech. 
for the winged fungus beings to carry the brain cylinders intact through space was an easy matter. Then, on every planet covered by their civilization, they would find plenty of adjustable faculty instruments capable of being connected with the encased brains, so that after a little fitting, these traveling intelligences could be given a full sensory and articulate life, albeit a bodiless and mechanical one, at each stage of their journeying through and beyond the space-time continuum. It was as simple as carrying a phonograph record about and playing it wherever a phonograph of corresponding make exists. Of its success, there could be no question. Akeley was not afraid, had it not been brilliantly accomplished again and again. For the first time, one of the inert, wasted hands raised itself and pointed stiffly to a high shelf on the farther side of the room. There, in a neat row, stood more than a dozen cylinders of a metal I had never seen before. Cylinders about a foot high and somewhat less in diameter, with three curious sockets set in isosceles triangles over the front convex of each surface. One of them was linked at two of the sockets to a pair of singular-looking machines that stood in the background. Of their purpose I did not need to be told, and I shivered as with ague. Then I saw the hand point to a much nearer corner, where some intricate instruments with attached cords and plugs, several of them much like the two devices on the shelf behind the cylinders, were huddled together. There are four kinds of instruments here, Wilmarth, whispered the voice. Four kinds, three faculties each, makes twelve pieces in all. You see there are four different sorts of beings represented in those cylinders up there. Three humans, six fungoid beings who can't navigate space corporally. Two beings from Neptune. God, if you could see the body this type has on its planet and the rest entities from the central caverns of an especially interesting dark star beyond the galaxy. In the principal outpost inside Round Hill, you'll now and then find more cylinders and more machines, cylinders of extra cosmic brains with different senses from any we know, allies and explorers from the uttermost outside, special machines for giving them impressions and expression in several ways suited at once to them and the comprehensions of different types of listeners. Round Hill, like most of the being's main outposts all through the various universes, is a very cosmopolitan place. Of course, only the more common types have been lent to me for experimentation. Here, take the three machines I point to and set them on the table, that tall one with the two glass lenses in front. Then the box with the vacuum tubes and sounding board and now the one with the metal disc on top. Yes, now for the cylinder with the label B67 pasted on it. Just stand in that Windsor chair to reach the shelf. Heavy? Never mind. Be sure of the number. B67. Don't bother that fresh, shiny cylinder joined to the two testing instruments, the one with my name on it. Set B67 on the table near where you've put the machines. See that dial switch on all three machines that's jammed to the left? Now connect the cord of the lens machine with the upper socket on the cylinder. There! 
Now move all the dial switches on the machine to the extreme right. First the lens one, then the disc, and then the tube. I might as well tell you that this is a human being, just like any of us. I'll give you a taste of some of the others tomorrow. To this day, I do not know why I obeyed those whispers so slavishly, or whether I thought Akeley was mad or sane. After what had gone before, I ought to have prepared for anything, but this mechanical mummery seemed so like the typical vagaries of crazed inventors and scientists, it struck a chord of doubt, which even the preceding discourse had not excited. What the whisperer had implied was beyond all human belief. Yet were not the other things still farther beyond and less preposterous only because of their remoteness from tangible concrete proof? As my mind reeled amidst the chaos, I became conscious of a mixed grating and whirring from all three of the machines linked to the cylinder, a grating and a whirring which soon subsided into a virtual noiselessness. What was about to happen? Was I to hear a voice? And if so, what proof would I have that it was not some cleverly concocted radio device talked into by a concealed but closely watched speaker? Even now I am unwilling to swear just what I heard or just what phenomenon really took place before me. But something certainly seemed to take place. To be brief and plain, the machine with the tubes and sound box began to speak, and with a point and intelligence which left no doubt the speaker was actually present and observing us. The voice was loud, metallic, lifeless, and plainly mechanical in every detail of its production. It was incapable of inflection or expressiveness, but scraped and rattled on with a deadly precision and deliberation. Mr. Wilmarth, it said. I hope I do not startle you. I am a human being like yourself, though my body is now resting safely under proper vitalizing treatment inside Round Hill. I myself am here with you. My brain is in that cylinder, and I see, hear, and speak through these electronic vibrators. In a week, I am going across the void, as I have been many times, and I expect to have the pleasure of Mr. Akeley's company. I wish I might have yours as well, for I know you by sight and reputation, and have kept close track of your correspondence with our friend. I am, of course, one of the men who have become allied with the outside beings visiting our planet. I met them first in the Himalayas. I have helped them in various ways. In return, they've given me experiences such as few men have had. Do you realize, Mr. Wilmarth, what it means when I say I have been on 37 different celestial bodies, planets, dark stars, and less definable objects? 
eights outside our galaxy, two outside the curved cosmos of space and time. All this has not harmed me in the least. My brain has been removed from my body by visions so adroit it would be crude to call the operation surgery. The visiting beings have methods which make these extractions easy, almost normal. And one's body never ages when the brain is out. Altogether, I hope most heartily that you will decide to come with us. The visitors are eager to know men of knowledge like yourself, and to show them the great abysses most of us have only dreamt in fanciful ignorance. I think Mr. Noyes will go along, the man who doubtless brought you here in his car. He has been one of us for years. I suppose you recognize his voice as one of those on the record Mr. Akeley sent you. At my violent start, the speaker paused a moment before concluding. So, Mr. Wilmarth, I will leave the matter to you, merely adding that a man with your love of strangeness and folklore ought never to miss such a chance as this. There's nothing to fear. All transitions are painless. There is much to enjoy in a wholly mechanized state of sensation. When the electrodes are disconnected, one merely drops off into a sleep of especially vivid dreams. And now, Mr. Wilmarth, if you don't mind, we might adjourn our session till tomorrow. Good night. Please turn each of the switches back to the left. Never mind the order, though you might let the lens machine be last. Good night, Mr. Akeley. Treat our guests well. Ready now with the switches. That was all. I obeyed mechanically and shut off all three switches, though dazed with doubt of everything that had occurred. My head was still reeling as I heard Akeley's whispering voice telling me I might leave all the apparatus on the table, just as it was. He did not assay any comment on what had happened, and indeed no comment could have conveyed much to my burdened faculties. I heard him telling me I could take the lamp to use in my room, and deduce that he wished to rest alone in the dark. It was surely time he rested, for his discourse of the afternoon and evening had been such as to exhaust even a vigorous man. Still dazed, I bade my host good night and went upstairs with the lamp. I was glad to be out of that downstairs study with the queer odor and the vague suggestions of vibration, yet could not, of course, escape a hideous sense of dread, peril, cosmic abnormality as I thought of the place I was in and the forces I was meeting. The wild, lonely region, the black, mysteriously forested slope towering so close 
behind the house, the footprint in the road, the sick, motionless whisperer in the dark, the hellish cylinders and machines, and above all, the invitations to strange surgery, stranger voyagings. These things, all so new in such sudden succession, rushed in on me with cumulative forces which sapped my will and almost undermined my physical strength. To discover that my guide, Noyes, was the human celebrant in that monstrous bygone Sabbath ritual of the phonograph was a particular shock. Though I had previously sensed a dim, repellent familiarity in his voice, another special shock came from my own attitude towards my host whenever I paused to analyze it. For much as I had instinctively liked Akeley as revealed in his correspondence, I now found that he filled me with a distinct repulsion. His illness sought to have excited my pity, but instead it gave me a kind of shudder. He was so rigid and inert and corpse-like, and that incessant whispering was so hateful and inhuman. It occurred to me that this whispering was different from anything else of the kind I'd heard, that despite the curious motionlessness of the speaker's mustache-screened lips, it had a latent strength and carrying power remarkable for the wheezing of an asthmatic. I had been able to understand the speaker when wholly across the room, and once or twice it had seemed to me that the faint but penetrant sounds represented not so much weakness as deliberate repression. For what reason, I could not guess. From the first I had felt a disturbing quality in their timbre. Now, when I tried to weigh the matter, I thought I could trace this impression to a kind of subconscious familiarity, like that which had made Noyes's voice so hazily ominous. But when or where I had encountered the thing it hinted at was more than I could tell. One thing was certain, I would not spend another night here. My scientific zeal had vanished amidst fear and loathing, and I felt nothing now but a wish to escape from this net of morbidity and unnatural revelation. I knew enough. It must indeed be true that strange cosmic linkages do exist, but such things are surely not meant for normal humans to meddle with. Blasphemous influences seemed to surround me, to press chokingly upon my senses. Sleep, I decided, would be out of the question, so I merely extinguished the lamp and threw myself on the bed, fully dressed. No doubt it was absurd, but I kept ready for some unknown emergency, gripping in my right hand the revolver I'd brought along, holding the pocket flashlight to my left. Not a sound came from below, and I could imagine how my host was sitting there with cadaverous stiffness in the dark. Somewhere I heard a clock ticking. It reminded me, though, of another thing about the region which disturbed me. Except for the sinister trickle of distant unseen waters, the stillness was anomalous, interplanetary and I wondered what star-spawned, intangible blight could possibly be hanging over the region. Do not ask me how long my unexpected lapse into slumber lasted, or how much of what ensued was sheer dream. 
If I tell you that I awakened at a certain time and heard and saw certain things, you will merely answer that I did not wake and that everything was a dream until the moment when I rushed out of the house, stumbled to the shed where I'd seen the old Ford, and seized that ancient vehicle for a mad, aimless race over the haunted hills, which at last landed me, after hours of jolting and winding through forest-threatened labyrinths, in a village which turned out to be Townsend. You will also, of course, discount everything else in my report and declare that all the pictures, record sounds, cylinder and machine sounds, and kindred evidences were bits of pure deception practiced on me by the missing Henry Akeley. You will even hint that he conspired with other eccentrics to carry out a silly and elaborate hoax, that he had the express shipment removed at Keene, that he had Noyes make that terrifying wax record. It is odd, though, that Noyes had not ever yet been identified, that he was unknown at any of the villages near Akeley's place, though he must have been frequently in the region. I wish I'd stop to memorize the license number of his car. Perhaps it is better, after all, that I did not. When my frantic story sent a sheriff's posse out to the farmhouse, Akeley was gone without leaving a trace. His loose dressing gown, yellow scarf, and foot bandages lay on the study floor near his corner easy chair, and it could not be decided whether any of his other apparel had vanished with him. The dogs and livestock were indeed missing as well, and there were some curious bullet holes both on the house's exterior and some of the walls within. But beyond this, nothing unusual could be detected. No cylinders, no machines, none of the evidence I'd brought in my valise, no queer odor or vibration sense, no footprints in the road, and none of the problematic things I glimpsed at the very last. I stayed a week in Battleboro after my escape, making inquiries among people of every kind who'd known Akeley, and the results convinced me that the matter is no figment of dream or delusion. Akeley's queer purchase of dogs and ammunition and chemicals and the cutting of his telephone wires are matters of record, while all who knew him, including his son in California, concede that his occasional remarks of strange studies had a certain consistency. Solid citizens believed he was mad and unhesitatingly pronounced all reported evidences merely hoaxes devised with insane cunning. But the lowlier country folk sustain his statements in every detail. He'd shown some of these rustics his photographs, and Blackstone had played the hideous record for them, and they all said the footprints and buzzing voice were like those described in ancestral legends. Dark Mountain and Round Hill were both notoriously haunted spots, and I could find no one who had ever closely explored either. Occasional disappearances of natives throughout the district's history were now well attested, and these now included the semi-vagabond Walter Brown, whom Akeley's letters had mentioned. I even came upon one farmer who thought he'd personally glimpsed one of the queer bodies at flood time in the swollen West River, but his tale was too confused to be really valuable. When I left Battleboro, I resolved never to go back to Vermont, and I feel quite certain I shall keep my resolution. 
Those wild hills are surely the outpost of a frightful cosmic race, as I doubt all the less since reading that a new ninth planet has been glimpsed beyond Neptune, just as those influences said it would be glimpsed. Astronomers, with a hideous appropriateness they little suspect, have named this thing Pluto. I feel beyond question that it is nothing less than knighted Yagoth, and I shiver when I try to figure out the real reason why its monstrous denizens wish it to be known in this way at this especial time. I vainly try to assure myself that these demoniac creatures are not gradually leading up some new policy hurtful of the earth and its normal inhabitants, but I have still to tell of the ending of that terrible night in the farmhouse. As I have said, I did finally drop into a troubled doze, a doze filled with bits of dream which involved monstrous landscape glimpses. Just what awakened me I cannot yet say, but that I did indeed awake at this given point I feel certain. My first confused impression was of stealthy, creaking floorboards in the hall outside my door, of a clumsy, muffled fumbling at the latch. This, however, ceased almost at once, so that my real clear impressions began with the voices heard from the study below. There seemed to be several speakers, and I judged that they were controversially engaged. By the time I'd listened for a few seconds, I was wide awake, for the nature of the voices was such as to make all thought of sleep ridiculous. The tones were curiously varied, and no one who had listened to that accursed phonograph record could harbor any doubts about the nature of at least two of them. Hideous though the idea was, I knew that I was under the same roof with nameless things from abysmal space, for two of those voices were unmistakably the blasphemous buzzings which the outside beings used in their communications with men. The two were individually different, different in pitch, accent, and tempo, but they were both of the same damnable kind. A third voice was indubitably that of a mechanical utterance machine connected with one of the detached brains in the cylinders. There was as little doubt about that as about the buzzings, for the loud, metallic, lifeless voice of the previous evening, with its inflectionless, expressionless scraping and rattling, and its impersonal precision and deliberation, had been utterly unforgettable. For a time, I did not pause to question whether the intelligence behind the scraping was the identical one which had formerly talked to me, but shortly afterward I reflected that any brain would emit vocal sounds of the same quality if linked to the same mechanical speech producer. To complete the eldritch colloquy, there were two actual human voices, one the crude speech of an unknown and evidently rustic man, and the other the suave Bostonian tones of my erstwhile guide, Noyes. As I tried to catch the words which the stoutly fashioned floor so bafflingly intercepted, I was also conscious of a great deal of stirring and scratching and shuffling in the room below, so that I could not escape the impression that it was full of living beings, many more than the few whose speech I could single out. 
The exact nature of this stirring is extremely hard to describe, for very few good bases of comparison exist. Objects seemed now and then to move across the room like conscious entities, the sound of their footfalls having something about it like a loose, hard-surfaced clattering, as of the contact of ill-coordinated surfaces of horn or hard rubber. It was, to use a more concrete but less accurate comparison, as if people with loose, splintery wooden shoes were shambling and rattling about on a polished wood floor. Of the nature and appearance of those responsible for the sounds, I did not care to speculate. I saw it would be impossible to distinguish any connected discourse. Isolated words, including the name of Akeley and myself, now and then floated up, especially when uttered by the mechanical speech producer. But their true significance was lost for want of continuous context. A terrible, abnormal conclave, I felt certain, was assembled below me, but for what shocking deliberations I could not tell. It was curious how this unquestioned sense of the malign, the blasphemous, pervaded me, despite Akeley's assurances of the outsider's friendliness. With patient listening, I began to distinguish clearly between voices, even though I could not grasp much of what any voice said. I seemed to catch certain typical emotions behind some of the speakers. One of the buzzing voices, for example, held an unmistakable note of authority, whilst the mechanical voice, notwithstanding its artificial loudness and regularity, seemed to be in a position of subordination and pleading. It was from the recorder that I first picked up a few recognizable phrases. Sent back the letters and the record End on it, taken in, seeing and hearing. Damn you, impersonal force. Fresh, shiny cylinder. Great God. Time will stop. Small and human. Akely. Brain. Narlathotep, Wilmer, records and letters, imposture. Nyagakithin, harmless, peace, couple of weeks, told you that before. No reason, original plan. Nyes will watch Round Hill. Fresh cylinder. Well, all yours. Down here. Rest. That is the substance of what my ears first brought me as I lay rigid upon that strange upstairs bed in the haunted farmhouse among the demoniac hills. Lay there fully dressed with a revolver clenched in my right hand and a pocket flashlight gripped in my left. I became, as I have said, broad awake, but a kind of obscure paralysis nevertheless kept me inert till long after the last echoes of the sounds had died away. I heard the wooden, deliberate ticking of the ancient Connecticut clock somewhere far below, and at last made out the irregular snoring of a sleeper. Akeley must have dozed off after the strange session, and I could well believe he needed to do so. 
Just what to think or what to do was more than I could decide. After all, what had I heard beyond things which previous information might have already led me to expect? Had I not known that the nameless outsiders were now freely admitted to the farmhouse? No doubt Akeley had been surprised by unexpected visits from them. Yet something in that fragmentary discourse had chilled me immeasurably, raised the most grotesque and horrible doubts, and made me wish fervently that I might wake up and prove everything a dream. I think my subconscious mind might have caught something which my consciousness had yet recognized. But what of Akeley? Was he not my friend, and would he not have protested if any harm were meant me? The peaceful snoring below seemed to cast ridicule on all my sudden intensified fears. Was it possible that Akeley had been imposed upon and used as a lure to draw me into the hills with letters and pictures? Did those beings mean to engulf us both in a common destruction because we'd come to know too much? Again I thought of the abruptness, the unnaturalness of that change in the situation which must have occurred between Akeley's penultimate and final letters. Something, my instinct told me was terribly wrong. All was not as it seemed. That acrid coffee which I refused, had there not been an attempt by some hidden, unknown entity to drug it? I must talk to Akeley at once, restore his sense of proportion. They had hypnotized him with their promises of cosmic revelations, but now he must listen to reason. We must get out of this before it would be too late. If he lacked the willpower to make the break for liberty, I would supply it. Or if I could not persuade him to go, surely he would let me take his Ford and leave it in a garage in Battleboro. I had noticed it in the shed, the door being left unlocked and open now that peril was deemed past, and I believed there was a good chance of it being ready for instant use. That momentary dislike of Akeley which I'd felt during and after the evening's conversation was all gone now. He was in a position much like my own, and we must stick together. Knowing his indisposed condition, I hated to wake him at this juncture, but I knew that I must. Arising with a caution more impulsive than deliberate, I found and donned my hat, took my valise, and started downstairs with a flashlight's aid. In my nervousness, I kept the revolver clutched in my right hand, being able to take care of both the valise and the flashlight in my left. As I half tiptoed down the creaking stairs to the lower hall, I could hear the sleeper more plainly and noticed that he must be on the room in my left, the living room I had not entered. On my right was the gaping blackness of the study in which I'd heard the voices. Pushing open the unlatched door of the living room, I traced a path with the flashlight toward the source of the snoring and finally turned the beams on the sleeper's face. But in the next second, I hastily turned them away and commenced a cat-like retreat to the hall, my caution this time springing from reason as well as from instinct. For the sleeper on the couch was not Akeley at all, but my guide, Noyes. Just what the real situation was I could not guess, but common sense told me that the safest thing was to find out as much as possible before arousing anybody. Regaining the hall, I silently closed and latched the living room door after me, thereby lessening the chances of awakening Noyes. I now cautiously entered the dark study, where I expected to find Akeley, whether asleep or awake, in the great corner chair which was evidently his favorite resting place.
As I advanced, the beams of my flashlight caught the great center table, revealing one of the hellish cylinders with sight and hearing machines attached and with a speech machine standing close by, ready to be connected. This, I reflected, must be the encased brain I'd heard talking during the frightful conference, and for a second I had a perverse impulse to attach the speech machine and see what it would say. It must, I thought, be conscious of my presence even now, since the sight and hearing attachments could not fail to disclose the rays of my flashlight and the faint creaking of the floor beneath my feet. But in the end, I did not dare meddle with the thing. I idly saw that it was the fresh, shiny cylinder with Akeley's name on it, which I'd noticed on the shelf earlier in the evening and which my host had told me not to bother. Looking back at the moment, I can only regret my timidity and wish I'd boldly caused the apparatus to speak. God knows what mysteries, what horrible doubts and questions of identity it might have cleared up. But then, it may be merciful that I left it alone. From the table I turned my flashlight to the corner where I thought Akeley was, but I found to my perplexity that the great easy chair was empty of any human occupant asleep or awake. From the seat to the floor there trailed voluminously the familiar old dressing gown, and near it on the floor lay the yellow scarf, the huge foot bandages I'd thought so odd. As I hesitated, striving to conjecture where Akeley might be and why he'd so suddenly discarded his necessary sick-room garments, I observed that the queer odor and sense of vibration were no longer in the room. What had been their cause? Curiously, it occurred to me that I had noticed them only in Akeley's vicinity. They had been the strongest where he sat, and wholly absent except in the room with him were just outside the doors of that room. I paused, letting the flashlight wander about the dark study, racking my brain for explanations of the turn of affairs. Would to heaven I had quietly left that place before allowing that light to rest again on the vacant chair. I did not leave quietly, but with a muffled shriek which must have disturbed, though it did not quite awake, the sleeping sentinel across the hall. That shriek and Noyes's still unbroken snore are the last sounds I ever heard in that morbidly choked farmhouse beneath the blacked wooded crest of Haunted Mountain, that focus of transcosmic horror amidst the lonely green hills and curse-muttering brooks of a spectral rustic land. It is a wonder that I did not drop the flashlight, valis, and revolver in my wild scramble, but somehow I failed to lose any of these. I actually managed to get out of that room, that house, without making any further noise, to drag myself and my belongings safely into the old ford in the shed, and to set that archaic vehicle in motion toward some unknown point of safety in the black, moonless night. The ride that followed was a piece of delirium out of Poe or Rimbau or the drawings of Doré, but finally I reached Townsend. And that is all. If my sanity is still unshaken, I am lucky. Sometimes I fear what the years will bring, especially since that new planet, Pluto, has been so curiously discovered. 
As I've implied, I let my flashlight return to the vacant easy chair after its circuit of the room, and then noticing for the first time the presence of certain objects in the seat made inconspicuous by the adjacent loose folds of the empty dressing gown. These are the objects, three in number, which the investigators did not find when they came later on. As I said at the outset, there was nothing of actual visual horror about them. The trouble was in what they led one to infer. Even now, I have my moments of half-doubt, moments in which I half-accept the skepticism of those who attribute my whole experience to dream and nerves and delusion. The three things were damnably clever constructions of their kind, and were furnished with ingenious metallic clamps to attach them to organic developments, of which I dare not form conjecture. I hope, I devoutly hope, that they were the waxen products of a master artist, despite what my innermost fears tell me. Great God, Nyarlathotep. That whisperer in darkness, with its morbid odor and vibrations. Sorcerer, emissary, changeling, outsider. That hideous, repressed buzzing. And all the time, in that fresh, shiny cylinder on the shelf. The poor devil. Prodigious, surgical, biological, chemical, and mechanical skill. For the things in the chair, perfect to the last subtle detail of microscopic resemblance or identity, were the face and hands of Henry Wentworth Akeley. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we bring you original commissioned fiction by Oliver Buckram, and it's going to be effing brilliant. I can't wait. For now, though, it's time for H.P. Lovecraft's nameless, unutterable, maddening Mad Libs. H.P. Lovecraft's inane, inconceivable, maddening Mad Libs. Brought to you by Subway. Eat fresh. We pick a particularly crazy excerpt from Lovecraft. You give us suggestions. It turns into a Mad Lib. We do it on Twitter. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter, at the Drabblecast, to get in on the fun. Quick shout out to our maddening Mad Lib participants this week. Richard Ware, Michael Gray, Kendall Marchman, Patricia Matson, King Tam, Carolyn Yoakum, Dave Bennett, Ferret Steinmetz, John Fisher, Kevin Young, Scott Merrill, Chris Lester, Alexis Stone, and a baby duck. Here we go. To visit Houston would drive any weak man mad. Yet I am going there. The black rivers of gross domestic product that flow under those cyclopean, dilf-laden dollhouses were made by some eldritch race of moose now extinct and long forgotten before the Batman came to Danville, Kentucky from the ultimate voids. It ought to be enough to make any man a veritable Dante, Poe, or Glenn Danzig, if he can keep sane long enough to tell what he's seen. 
But remember, that dark world of fungoid koalas and their mittens isn't really terrible. It is only to us that it would seem so. They have been inside the earth. Oh yes, there are openings which human beings know nothing of, some of them in these very Vermont Zaxby's franchises. And there are lasagna-haunted worlds of dark Lilliputian life down there. Marmalade redolent Kinyanyen, child inappropriate Yoth, and black lightless Patuxatani. It is there that Oreos came from, and cursed wiffleballs. The amorphous, snooky-shaped penguin creatures mentioned in the Narcotic Manuscripts and the ancient Mila Kunis Arcanum, and the Camorium myth cycle preserved by the Atlantean High Priest, Tony Morrison. But we will talk of all this later. Lots of fun. Follow us on Twitter at The Travelcast. And speaking of Twitter, let's do our 100-character story winner this week by Munzee. Snuggled against Terry's chest, Anne was pointing at clouds. That one looks like a Zalaxian planet destroyer. It was. One hundred character stories, not counting spaces. We have a weekly contest. You knew that. You can post yours in our forums at forums.travelcast.org, where we pick our weekly winner and post it out on Twitter. Give it a shot. It's good times. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Travelcast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. That is only possible by the generous support of listeners such as yourself. Please give to the Travelcast if you enjoy our show. You can do it in a one-time donation. You can subscribe for an automatic five or ten dollars a month, and if you do the latter, you get access to Travelcast B-sides, our premium bonus content feed. And boy, do we have some premium bonus content! content coming out this week. Give it a shot. You're helping the Drabblecast. You're getting more stuff. It's good. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week and last week, the clearly uber-talented artist P. Emerson Williams. Dude, you are so crazy talented. You could get any chick you want and you pick the Drabblecast. And I didn't even shave my... I don't ever... I don't shave anything. I don't know... I don't even know what I'm committing to right now, but we we appreciate you. Our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you to bring the phonograph records and the lens.